Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, you're listening to the Third Coast Podcast. I'm Katie Mingle, the producer of ReSound. We'll get to the show in a sec, but first, I want to remind you that you have 17 days left to make and submit your short doc for the challenge this year. Now, that's 17 days from the day I'm recording this, which is Friday the 13th of April. The deadline is April 30th. Go to our website, thirdcoastfestival.org, to read all about the rules and incentives and to look at an interactive map of the submissions we've received so far. All right, I'll let Gwen take it from here. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Everyone has a different view of themselves, but keeping a positive outlook will benefit you more than a negative one. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and all sorts of audio oddities we collect from around the world. Then each week we repackage and replay it on ReSound. A complete guide to self-esteem and self-confidence. You are feeling good to be able to control your body. This is the first track of a self-hypnosis program designed for altering your body image. Why should I waste my time each day trying to make myself more beautiful? The muscle-building workout you're about to hear is awesome, unique, fun, and free. Simply follow the sound of my voice and watch as the sound of the words open the areas both inner and outer. Just wait. You're gonna love it. Pretty much everyone hates something about themselves. Too fat, too thin, oh, not pretty enough, not tall enough, wrong hair color, really. It's endless. Maybe it's just human nature. Maybe it's societal values. Would we all feel so inadequate if we lived on a desert island with no mirrors and no media and no mandates? Who knows? Figuring that out is the job of the psychologists and philosophers. Our job today is to play some of the most compelling audio that's been created around these issues of body image. First, a warning. Some of today's stories are not appropriate for younger or more sensitive listeners. Some individuals suffer from poor body image and focus on all the negative traits of their physical appearance. The pictures you play in your mind about the way you look and act. We start with a piece from Australia called Wannabes by Kath Duncan. Wannabes, in this case, refers to people who feel abnormal in their normal bodies, so much so that they voluntarily disable themselves. Producer Kath Duncan, who was born physically disabled, takes an admittedly personal interest in the story. I'm fascinated with my body. 
I'm a frog. A flamingo. A mutant from another planet. I've only got most of what it takes to be recognised as human, because there's bits missing. It's always been this way. And I hope it's not too egotistical to say I'm totally unique. I've never seen another human being like me. I'm supremely asymmetrical, or a perfect example of bent or twisted symmetry. I was born without half my left arm and right leg. I'm appealing and appalling, magical and cursed. I can shift between worlds, part of this world and part something totally other. I'd like to confess something. I feel superior. No one suffers like me, right? Suffering can be a special gift. It gives me a divine identity, deeper and more intense than other people. I was about 14, 13 or 14, and I used to be in bed at night saying prayers, and I would whisper my prayers aloud, Dear God, please let my leg be amputated. Whisper. George is the first wannabe I've ever met, but there are others. We are clandestine, hidden, secretive, wear shoes, you know, because you can be gay and out in the open. You can have tattoos and be out in the open, but you cut off the big toe off your foot and people are going to think you're a wacko. L1 would be about just a little bit below the belly button, which would mean if I had a complete injury there that I would basically have no feelings, no function, no anything happening below the belly button. Why did I choose that specific level? I don't know. A wannabe is someone who wants to be disabled. For all I'm saying about how great it is to be me, no one's ever said they'd like to trade places. I found a wannabe's website and I was astonished to read about a trip one of them was suggesting to the minefields in Cambodia. That a whole bunch of wannabes could go for a stroll and have their dreams of being leg amputees come true. And I couldn't tell if it was a joke. I couldn't believe it. Why would anyone want to be disabled? You feel largely that you're in the wrong body. And that's the nearest description that I can give you. You are very clear that you do not want this leg. You perhaps don't know why, and I mean, I certainly don't know why, have never known why, and, and still don't know why I didn't want my leg. But it's, it's there, and it's there from a very early age. But you, you feel trapped in the wrong body. You want something very different. But at the same time, you can't talk about it. It's something that's not talked about anywhere until very, very recently. But the analogy that I always use is the transsexual because that's the one that's been about a bit longer and people understand. You have males or females that grow up and for some reason they want to be the opposite sex. And for them it's part of their identity. It's not just about sex, it's about culture, attitudes, emotions, everything. And that, in a similar sort of way, is what this is all about. Is it possible that what I see is a cage 
this body could be seen by others as a liberation, a true expression of what they really need to be. I had to find out. So when the chance came up to travel around the world, I decided to find some wannabes and talk to them. I'm in my hotel room in Chicago and I'm expecting George and there's a knock at the door. I open the door to a guy who's very seamed and wrinkled with his hair straightened back, big pair of glasses. George is wearing crutches so his leg stump is dangling in the air. George told me he didn't want to have my body but his life had pointed him in a direction he couldn't change. And to resolve the issues that haunted him, he was convinced he'd have to lose a leg. I, I gave myself over to it. I decided, you know, that if I was going to do it, I had to be purposeful. I didn't really care if I didn't survive. So I planned, you know, the thing, and I decided, well, I'm going to have a pretext for this, so I'm going to hunt crows. And uh, because that was something I did, did as a youngster, and I had a gun, I had a shotgun. Crows hate owls. So I sent away and got this plastic owl. And um, I'm preparing, okay. And then I decided, well, uh, you know, I'll have to have something to make a tourniquet out of. And, uh, you know, well, I had a, a nice hunting knife that had a sheath, a leather sheath. And this was to be the lever with which to turn the tourniquet, you see. Then I needed a, um, a cordless telephone because I figured, you know, I would want to um, inform somebody. So I got a cordless phone. And um, what else? I don't know. I guess that was sort of it. I want George to tell me in 90 seconds why he did what he did. But he doesn't. He takes hours and there's many different parts to his story. It's a terrible story about what it's like to grow up feeling deeply outside of your family and deeply outside of culture. And none of it really makes much sense except the torture of it and the misery of it. And I scouted and I found a place between two of those lovely pine trees and it was a blue beautiful blue day, clear sky, you know, and the pine trees looked like gold, the green looked like gold up there. And I brought my gear out and I sat down and positioned myself. And it was a blue, beautiful blue day. The safety was off and I started dithering with the trigger. My figure was in the trigger guard and, and I was dithering and, uh, you know, I, it's almost as if I didn't have a will to pull the trigger. The green looked like gold up there. And I, I was just, you know, dithering and pressing against the trick a little bit, and all of a sudden they exploded. <laughs> and that was it. And uh, suddenly my, you know, my leg turned into a, a puddle of blood and fat and shredded muscle and pieces of bone and cloth from the trouser leg. and. Uh, and it had happened. So I took off my belt and wrapped it around it and tied a knot and got the hunting knife in its sheath and tied a knot around it in place and hauled up on the tourniquet. 
and secured the lever so it wouldn't unwind. And then I reached for the telephone and turned it on and nothing happened. The thing that I had overlooked to check was the telephone. I was just out of range. My fingers were slipping off the keypad. My fingers were covered with blood. And I was trying to... Uh, I was getting a little woozy, I guess. But what should happen then? My landlady walked by. She had heard the shot and thought, that was awfully close. And she had to figure what this was. And she came walking around. And this dear woman saved my life. going through a train station about an hour north of London and as I go along on my artificial leg I know I'm about to meet someone with a leg just like mine. I go up the stairs in that funny way I do. I stare at a time. Stomp stomp. Stomp stomp. And at the top of the stairs there's someone walking in the same way towards me. It's Paul. And I know that of all the people here right now he and I are the only ones who know he got a surgeon to remove his perfectly healthy leg. That he chose to be an amputee. I was doing it for me. It meant that I could look at myself in the mirror and think, yeah, I like what I see. I never looked at myself in the mirror before my amputation. Very, very rarely, only just to make sure the, the beard wasn't growing too odd or whatever. I'd never, I never liked looking at myself in the mirror. Paul looks like Mr Average. He's got thinning hair that's kind of ready gold just enough to get me by for work and stuff like that. was never... I, my appearance wasn't uh, unkempt and scruffy, but I never made any... Pale help. skin. Neither fat nor thin, neither tall nor short. In fact, the only thing that makes him stand out is his artificial leg. It's a world of mirror images. I hated going shopping because with two legs, I always felt that people looking at me and thinking I was strange, which is clearly utter rubbish, because I also knew that when I became an amputee, people really would look at me. But I actually don't mind people looking at me because I'm now the person I always should have been before I was something alien. Perhaps the way I felt then was the, the way that lots of amputees feel when they go out, perhaps they feel self-conscious or awkward or whatever. But for me, it was the complete reverse. And, and, and I think that, in, in many ways, is, is the most striking thing of how opposite lots of things are for most amputees. For me, they're inverted and are positive things. Remarkable. Remarkable. Um, wow. Um... Um, some of this really the funny thing about talking to Paul is he takes me completely by surprise. I want him to justify why he got a hospital to remove his leg. And he does. He convinces me. I, I kind of want to hate him, but I feel really sympathetic. 
I mean, I contemplated suicide on three or four occasions. Serious, I don't just mean as an act to get attention, or I was really serious. Because I couldn't see any way forward, I couldn't see any way out of it. My life was... was I, I wasn't functioning. It was so important to me. I just wasn't functioning as as any normal individual, and I I just wanted an end to it. So it was, yeah. Do I go and put my leg on a railway line and risk death or some sort of disfigurement that I didn't want, or do I just take the other way out, which is say I can't cope with this anymore, and just finish it all? So that those are the those were the options you were bouncing between. Yeah. yeah. When it came to it, I didn't have enough guts to go and put my leg on a railway line or to get a shotgun. There was no way I could do that. And so the only answer for me was, OK, you've got to do something about it. If you want a surgical operation, you've got to go and, 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 and do it. These wannabes go to great lengths to pretend to be or to make themselves disabled. All the efforts I used to put into trying to be able-bodied kind of resembles their attempts to be like me. On a deeply embarrassing level, I find something flattering in this. Roger's apartment is in a street full of apartments just like his in Brooklyn. It's very busy, very noisy. Roger's quite short, only about five foot tall. And I see where he's got his shirt opened uh, at the neck, his colourful tattoos, and he's got tattoos on both arms. And I say, wow, how far does that go? And have a look, and I can see that the tattoos go all over the rest of him, except for his face. In both ears, he's got Coke bottle tops. And he's quite the weirdest-looking guy I think I've ever seen. I developed a ritual for doing this, and it involved eating well and, and taking care of the blood, uh, eating beets and tomatoes for about a month, no aspirin for a week. To set up, I bought a set of chisels. I um, laid everything out, bandages, the gauze for direct pressure, the chisels, um, alcohol, I was going to take a hammer and a chisel, lower the temperature of a toe, and then tap it with the hammer and chisel and see if I could go through the toe quickly in a rather painless way. So the first time I chickened out, I just, I got all ready and, and I, everything was positioned and I couldn't go through with it. Ah, but then I took a nap, and somebody called me to wake me up about an hour or two later, and there's something about awakening. The hormones maybe are different, and I found I had a new bravado. So again, I positioned the chisel and the hammer, and uh, I, was, um, I put the toe on a piece of wood, and the toe had been cooled with ice, and what happened was it was very numb. So I took the hammer and the chisel, and I positioned the chisel, now the toe was numb, and I gave it a, a tap or two, and then I lifted my foot up, and the toe remained on the wood. 
So there I was, and I said, my God, I did it. That was my first reaction. I did it. Which toe? Um, it was um, a middle toe, the middle toe on my right foot. Uh-huh. I, I took off the first joint, and I was so pleased with what I did. I then took the hammer and chisel and went further back on the toe. It's really hard to listen to Roger talking about his foot operations in his enthusiastic way when what I see is something I find really nauseating. His left foot has no toes on it at all, not even the big toe, and it's all soft with just little bumps along the top, and he's so proud of his foot. And I find it repulsive and fascinating. And then I did one finger. I kind of want to touch it, but I don't want to. When you start on the fingers, you are coming out, so to speak. I I even told one of my friends, and uh, she said, you know, you've got to get go for psychotherapy. So I found a hip psychotherapist, a psychotherapist who might be sympathetic to what I was doing. And I started seeing this fellow on a weekly basis. And at first he was horrified, but the more we're into this, we're beginning to think, well, certainly it's not like something called cutting. There's Cutting is masochistic, and the people who do it are primarily female teenagers in America. I don't know about Australia, but in really evaluating what I've been doing, we're beginning to think that, well, first of all, I'm not depressed, I'm not crying out for help, I'm highly thought of at work. So the psychotherapist says, well, you know, you're not, it's, it's a very strange thing to do, but you're not um, in a psychotic episode or heavily neurotic. But I must admit that it's fun. It's a very pleasurable experience for me. I can't believe that anyone would put themselves through so much pain, and I don't know why. When I ask Roger why, he says, for freedom. And I say, freedom from what? And he can't tell me what it is. And I see there's been blood. I see he's hacked through big joints, and I don't understand it. He seems to just like the look. Could it be that we hold many bodies within us and drift consciously or unconsciously between them? Do we all walk around with visions of our bodies that conflict with the reality? Are we all made from the same stuff? What if I'm not so special after all? What about my complex everyday rituals? putting on my leg, my moments of transformation from being a one-legged to a two-legged creature and back again. The way I clean my teeth with one arm, the way I tie back my hair, use a keyboard. Perhaps they're just ordinary parts of life. Instead of being like I see them, mystical practices where I have to find my own path. Instead of just aping adults the way two-armed, two-legged people do. There's a psychophysiologist in New York who might be able to shed some light on the whole wannabe thing. His name's Dr Richard Bruno. He's done a lot of research on wannabes. And one of the main reasons I want to talk to him is that he's disabled too. 
One of the wannabes, let's say, demands or interests, one of the things they'd like to see is the possibility of getting surgery done legitimately, safely, cleanly, neatly and so forth, um, to have the desired limb or finger or wh whatever it is removed. How do you view such a desire? I think probably it would be approached um, the same way that you would approach gender reassignment. If you can remove a penis and make a vagina, I think you could lop off a leg. That seems to be uh, less traumatic in general to me. Um, I, I guess I thought as a person in the profession, though I know you don't hack no, people no, up, no, that you'd be, ter you'd be horrified at the thought. No. Well, should there be a wannabe clinic at Johns Hopkins? And, well, maybe there should. The question that you would have to ask, though, why are you looking at me that way? <laughs> I'm shocked here. No, the, the question you'd have to ask is the questions that we asked um, the patients that we were treating. Why is it that you feel this way? You know, what, what happened in the past that brought you to the point where you believe that if you have your leg removed, that you will be lovable, that you will be acceptable, that you will get what you never got when you were a child? And Dr. Bruno is really dishy. He's got dark hair and beautiful olive skin, big dark eyes, and I'm looking at both of us. He's in a wheelchair, and I've taken my leg off. I, I would really like it if Richard would acknowledge that both of us have a stake in this, that as two disabled people, there's something about this whole wannabe desire that can shed some insight on how we view ourselves. Said, I can imagine that there are folks, maybe some of whom you've interviewed, who are so absolutely desperate and want to be a disabled adult, and you could determine that that was true. And if you did the same thing that Hopkins does, you know, let them live as a disabled adult for a period of time. Have them cross walk, I guess in this case, as opposed to cross dress. Um, and see how they do. I mean, does, does this in fact meet their needs? Are they happier uh, using a wheelchair or braces and crutches? And if they are, then, well, maybe amputation wouldn't be necessary. I mean, for the, for the brace devotees, well, you give them a pair of braces and let them walk. And after a while, their legs will atrophy and they won't be able to walk. And maybe that will work out for them. And I've shocked your bloomers <laughs> off. You didn't think I was going I to say that. I didn't think you were going to say that. No, I didn't think you were going to say that at all. Are we talking about, though, looking for a cure? I mean, is your approach coming into it from a psychophysiological point of view, is the idea really to create a, a happy person who doesn't want to lose limbs? My general feeling about psychotherapy is that stuff happened to people when they were young. And it's sort of like um, artillery. These shells came flying in and created these huge holes. And the whole trick as an adult is not to fill the holes in, but not to fall into them. So what you would want to do is get anybody who has a psychological problem to identify the hole, whether or not they can identify where it came from, and stop falling into the hole. Now, if you're gonna make a non-disabled person disabled, are you in fact pushing them into the hole? 
or trying to fill up the hole with their amputated limb. That's impossible. You can't fill these holes. And there are going to be things that you'll never get that you should have gotten. You can't uh, resurrect your dead parents and regress 30 or 40 years and be back home and be loved. That just isn't going to happen. And I don't think hacking off all your limbs, becoming paraplegic, and removing an eye is going to do that. Put it this way, would you rather be mad, <laughs> seriously depressed, unhappy, and generally miserable, or would you rather be the complete opposite of that? And uh, disabled. Yeah, you see, that that's another difference. You see, I don't actually perceive it as a disability. It's the opposite for me, because it's allowed me to go on. I do more sport now, I go out more, I, I'm more outgoing... Um, which before I wasn't. So it's not a disability. I have a physical difficulty with occasional things, but um, I was disabled before. Now I'm the opposite of disabled. I would say if you don't understand, don't worry, because I'd say 99% of wannabes don't understand either. Philip's really attractive. He's got a mass of wavy, dark hair... He's got pale skin. He's got really delicate, beautiful hands. He's sort of your classic pretty boy. We're not hurting anyone. In a chair. It's something we do for ourselves. I use my wheelchair for myself. I am not using any benefits. I'm not using public parking spaces. It is, in effect, leading a double life. Uh, It used to be I had to hide my wheelchair. Now it's to a point I have to hide my legs and neither is any easier than the other it's a vicious circle you have to do things to feel more comfortable which in turn create problems which makes you feel bad which you have to get out of and just keeps going and going but as far as I've known in my life this is the best balance I've found I feel like I've travelled a long way. Wannabes say they have no choice about their difference. Neither do I. They say they're obsessed with their bodies. So am I. They say they have no regrets about their difference. Neither do I. My ground's kind of shifting. They articulate my secret thoughts, but in a bizarre kind of reverse order. I'm starting to wonder about the layers of body we carry with us. I'm beginning to have this ghastly realisation that I might be human after all. But one amputee friend says, if life were fair, I would trade every nut and bolt of my prosthetic life to a wannabe for the opportunity to wiggle my toes once more, to feel the cool green grass beneath my feet, to walk without pain. If life were only fair. Wannabes was produced by Kath Duncan for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's Radio Eye. One of the most fascinating tidbits about this piece is that when Kath first conceived it, she wanted just the wannabes telling their own story with no narrator. 
But the Radio Eye producers wanted her perspective in the piece. She says she ended up enjoying her role as narrator since, quote, it was one of those rare occasions when myself, the congenital freak, was the perspective of normality in the piece with the wannabes perceivably more freaky than me. Oh, it was a rare thing indeed, unquote. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. In 2003, when we first met Rocky Tea, he was a teenager and he weighed 390 pounds. He had just produced his first radio story called My Struggle with Obesity as part of Radio Rookies from WNYC in New York. Later, his weight would go up to 500 pounds. But the honesty and bluntness of Rocky's story endeared him to a wide audience. And he won numerous awards, including a Third Coast Festival Richard H. Driehaus Award. And he became a little bit of a celebrity. His recent fame isn't the only change in Rocky's life, as you're about to hear. Here's his follow-up story called Saying Goodbye to Food. Another word of warning. His story may not be appropriate for more sensitive listeners. Hey, everybody. This is Katie Mingle, uh, producer of the show again. Just to elaborate on Gwen's warning, the thing you're going to hear in this piece that may be difficult for sensitive listeners is actually the sound of someone vomiting. Okay, I just wanted you to know that. It's a good story, but proceed with that in mind. When I was 11 years old, I made a promise I couldn't keep. I was on vacation at my uncle's house, and after a fun day of swimming, with my shirt on, of course, I went into the bathroom and nervously stepped on the scale. 200 pounds. So I swore to Allah, something you're not supposed to do in the bathroom, that I wouldn't get any fatter. But I could never slam the door on food. My comfort for life. My best friend in chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. You have a choice to lose weight. Just now you ate a pint of ice cream. Is that necessary? I ate a pint of ice cream just you now. You ate a pint of ice cream, strawberry ice cream. That's my twin sister and me. Just now. I recorded it when I was 15 for my first radio story. Yesterday you ate three bowls of cereal. It was not strawberry ice cream. It was, it was fudge ice cream. The night before my story aired, 
I thought everyone was just going to hear me as a fat, sad complainer who really didn't want to lose weight. This message is for Rocky. But so many people wrote in, and I didn't feel alone anymore. Despite being a Jewish anorexic, I identified... That means having healthy munchies around, you know, raisins, fruit. If Rocky wants to ask me about it, tell him to feel free to email me or call me. Unbelievable. I went from hiding my problems to telling millions of strangers. On the Jane Pauly Show. And when the Jane Pauly Show came knocking, I was fatter than ever. My name is Rocky. I'm 16. There I was, in soft focus, with what seemed like my only friends in the world, my cat Simba, and of course, the refrigerator. I need to lose weight or I'm going to die. I was on the show with a whole panel of fat kids. Rachel is so young. The girl sitting next to me was scheduled to have a new type of weight loss surgery. The lap band, an inflatable ring around the top part of your stomach. Way, way, way too big. Her surgeon, Dr. George Fielding, told us that diet and exercise for morbidly obese people, like me, is just hopeless. And her realistic chances of losing that weight, is, it's effectively zero. For a year, those words kept on repeating over and over in my head, like a nonstop washing machine getting louder and louder. I always knew surgery was an option. I just thought of it as a last resort, like for people who are so fat they can't even move. And I wasn't at that point. By my last year of high school, I was 300 pounds overweight. 300 reasons for my mom to be angry and concerned. I want to see you outside, hang out, have friends, have a life. I don't have a life? Not like your brothers, no. But don't make it seem like I'm just a caveman. But you're not doing nothing, and every week you gain weight. I'm not doing nothing? Nothing. Don't you think dealing with my weight mentally is exhausting? You're not doing nothing. I'm dealing with it in my head. Is your head helping you? No. Let's make it clear. I wasn't just a fat boy sitting in the corner looking depressed. At school, I made people know me for more than just a kid who wore a size 64 pants. Am I funny? Yeah, yeah, yeah you're funny. So does it, shouldn't that overshadow my size? No, nothing can overshadow your size. Just like nothing could overshadow your bad grades. <laughs> no, really, come on. But I had bigger problems than just coming up with good, quick insults. I had to request an elevator pass to get me up two flights of stairs and a special desk in each of my classrooms. I weighed 517 pounds. So I made a decision to have surgery and save my life. My brother and sister told me I was taking the easy way out. You don't even take gym class. I do take gym class. No, you don't. Don't lie. I'm medically excused from gym. Oh, see? You put no effort into it. It's again with my theory. Do you not wake up in the morning eating a Hershey bar or something? That's issues right there. That's something you have to control in yourself. Hello, hello. I know I have a weight problem. My solution to my weight problem is surgery. No. No. My dad told me I wasn't allowed to have the surgery. He thought I should just go to the gym. But in my family, if dad says no, you convince mom. And then, of course, keep it a secret. Your father doesn't know. No, no we, we fill up the closet with SlimFast. We yeah. tell him you're on SlimFast. <laughs> hey, this is Rocky. It's Sunday night and the day before my surgery. Before I could finally have the operation, it's I had hard. to go on a two-week low-calorie liquid diet. I've just been sleeping every day just to get through the day without food. And it's just... 
It's sad to see how strong food has a control over me. But I can do it. I'm ready to say goodbye to food. It's going to kill me if I don't say goodbye. What are we doing today? Uh, you doing your surgery? That's my mom and me at the hospital. How do you feel? Scared. What are you afraid of? God forbid if something happened to you, that's why. That's why I couldn't even look at you. I said, oh my God, if I have something happen to him, what am I going to do with my life? It was finally time. I put on a blue gown and went into a small room to wait. Wait for my name to be called. Wait for my new life to begin. It's 11.57, April 10th, the day of my surgery. I had the surgery. I want to cry, but it's going to hurt if I cry. I can't wait to see what my new life has to in store for me. I can't wait. It's Sunday and I'm in my bathroom. My dad just called me down to eat because my mom made dinner for him. So he's calling me down to eat now and I'm so fucking scared because I can't eat that much. But I'm going down. I ended up telling my dad right after dinner. I couldn't hold back anymore. He was surprisingly calm. Even I don't agree with it, I'm still going to support you. And weeks later, he was teasing me about the lap band. Get ready, big boy. Get that belly. Get that rubber band open. You got a lot of lobsters to Months after surgery, I was already trying to push the lap band to the limit. First with Pringles, then with Chinese food. My Saturday night dates with TV and food continued. The lap band controlled how much I ate, but it didn't control why I ate. So what do I do when I'm sad, frustrated, or bored? I feel really full. My body's telling me no, but my mind is telling me yeah. I have to learn to accept it or I'm just going to keep on throwing up and throwing up and throwing up. There comes the soup. I definitely ate too much. I'm hovering over this thing because I know it's coming out. And there goes my dinner. Back into the sink. This was it. I thought I found a secret loophole, a way to still eat my emotions away and lose weight. I didn't think there was anything wrong with throwing up. I went to Dunkin' Donuts to buy like a case of these Dunkin' Donut cups. So when I throw up, I could just throw it up in these cups and then throw the cups away. But then a nutritionist in my surgeon's office told me the lap band could slip and would have to be removed and that I might destroy my esophagus. See you later, hero sandwich. Hello, pumpkin spice latte with half and half. I know I'm supposed to avoid liquid calories, but that's the only thing that can make me feel happy and not make me throw up. And even with my daily trips to Starbucks, I managed to lose 200 pounds in one year. Are you excited? The last time my friend Letitia saw me, I was huge. We used to hang out. People used to look at us like, why is that pretty skinny girl with him? The train was the worst. Oh, yeah. With the boys. Remember when that movie came out and that boy was calling you Fat Albert? He was? Yes, Sam. 
When? There was a hey, hey, hey. That's Reactions have changed. Letitia even says people are looking at us like we're a couple. This is a new person, and I look so good. But Letitia thinks my weight is the only thing different. Why do you think because you're skinnier you look good? To me, you look good before. Oh, don't lie. Don't I look no, so much no. better now? You look better. You look better, but you're still the same person. But I'm not. I'm not Rocky anymore. I wish this me could have told huge monster Rocky just how better life is, how much more fun life is, how alive I feel. I do want to figure out why I got so big. And I still eat to feel good, like when I'm bored or I can't express how I feel. My body is marked with scars and extra skin, reminding me every day just how big I was. But even now, with another 100 pounds to lose, when I'm walking down the street, I feel like I'm flying, like the wind is pushing me along. And when I see little fat kids, I want to wake them up and tell them before it's too late just how hard life is for a fat teenager so they won't have to grow up to be like me with a band around their stomach. Saying Goodbye to Food was produced by Rocky Tea and Kari Pitkin of Radio Rookies from WNYC in New York. For a link to his website where you can contact Rocky, see before and after pictures, or listen to some of his other radio work, go to thirdcoastfestival.org. While there, you can also find a link to Radio Rookies. And you can listen to hundreds of great audio documentaries from around the world. You can also send us some mail. We love mail. The address is resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. All right, I'm finished. Now, how do I look? Wonderful. listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today we're listening to stories about body image, and just to prove there's no getting away from these issues, we have a story for you from war-torn Iraq. Reporter Elizabeth Threlkill found two girls in Iraq for whom body image and plastic surgery has become extremely important, albeit for two very different reasons. This story first aired on War News Radio, a show produced by the students at Swarthmore College that tries to tell the stories of real people affected by the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. They're both Iraqi, both girls, only 10 years apart in age, but you'd never know it from their stories. Marwa Naeem and Sharina Fadel might have led similar lives, but that all changed one warm day in April 2003. Marwa, a cheery nine-year-old with an infectious laugh, thought it was just an ordinary day. It wasn't. I was playing outside, and then I saw planes, and then I ran to my mom and I said, what's going on? She said, these are just planes, no problem. And then as soon as she said, everything's going to be okay, that's when the war started. And then after that, I didn't feel anything. The war, for Marwa and her family, was a missile fired by a U.S. plane during the last days of the fight for Baghdad. The attack left Marwa severely injured and tore her family apart. Her mother had been killed. Over the next few days, Marwa underwent surgeries in Iraq, but doctors couldn't mend all her wounds. Dr. Timothy Miller. She had lost the majority of her nose 
like if you take your thumb and, and fingers and sort of grab the end of your nose and all the tip of the nose and all the somewhat mobile portion of the nose was just completely gone. Outside Baghdad, things were more peaceful. In Suleimania, a Kurdish city in northern Iraq, there were no major U.S. combat operations during the initial invasion. The city was, and still is, one of the safest in Iraq, home to mostly secular, modern families. Shireen al-Fadl belongs to one such family. In April of 2003, she was 19 and just entering university, where she would study to become a meteorological engineer. Shireen had a bright future before her, but she felt as if something were holding her back. Her looks. It's my nose. My brothers, they are always teasing me about my nose. It's huge. It's not a beautiful. One of those brothers, Ahmed, the youngest of Shireen's three critics, doesn't mince words with his little sister. Her nose is uh, big, so a big nose can affect too much on the look of the face. <laughs> I always make, make fun of her when I see her. <laughs> Back in Baghdad, Marwa was facing far worse taunts for her nose. After the attack, she became the mother of the household, caring for her two little sisters while her father and brother worked to make ends meet. School should have been her escape, a place where she could play with friends and act her age. They used to make fun of me, so I got mad at them when they made fun of me. I just ignored them and walked away. But according to Teresa Musa, Marwa's friend and mentor, Marwa walked away from much more than taunting classmates. That's why she left school, actually, because kids were making fun of her. Marwa's nose was severely disfigured. Back in Salomonia, Shireen had no such injury. However, her brother Ahmed says both girls are at risk. It's very important to the girl to have a nice look. The girls want to marry, and if they, if they don't uh, look like, well, they will not get married. Hearing her brother's advice and unwilling to let her nose affect her future, a few months ago, Shireen decided to do something about it. I told my father. He was trying to talk me out of it, to tell me that you don't need the surgery. Your face and your looks is uh, okay. He told me it's going to be a very painful procedure. Uh, he tried to stop me out of it, but uh, I didn't take no for an answer. I told him I want to do the surgery. Shireen is in luck. Rhinoplasty, a procedure that seems more at home in Beverly Hills than in Baghdad, is available in Iraq to those willing to take the risk. But it's not just the usual complications of surgery Shireen will have to worry about. What happens outside the operating room might pose more of a threat than the surgery itself. Every week or every month, you hear that a hospital was targeted by a car bomb or a terrorist. Most people who can afford it travel to the relative safety of Syria or Jordan to get rhinoplasty. But for those willing to face the threat, there is an advantage to going under the knife in Baghdad. The price. Only one million Iraqi dinar, or around $700. Shireen's family can afford this, so after her exams, she will stay in Baghdad for surgery. For Marwa, surgery was out of the question. The operations to correct her deformity would cost her family $12,000, assuming they could find a surgeon. But fortune struck. When the humanitarian group International Relief and Development was working with her father, he told them Marwa's story. Together with a few other groups, they gave Marwa this surprise. My dad told me that you're going to America to have surgeries done, and I said, okay. I was happy that I was going to come, but then at the same time, I was scared. She seems subdued. It's understandable. Not only would 12-year-old Marwa face four surgeries to reconstruct her nose, but she would be halfway around the world for four months, alone. But on this journey, Marwa found a friend in Teresa Musa, the Egyptian-born patient coordinator at UCLA. 
when she arrived, we got attached, and then every every time she goes see a doctor, she want me to be there. Even uh, her surgeries, I was in the operating room with her three times. Back in Baghdad, Shireen is eager for her nose surgery, scheduled for next month. Both her cousin and her close friend have already had nose jobs. She can't wait to see how her own surgery will turn out, especially after seeing her cousin's new nose, done by the same surgeon. Actually, my cousin did the surgery a year ago, and the results were wonderful. Her face was chiseled when he did the surgery. He did it so perfectly, even better than the, the American shows that we show on TV, like Extreme Makeover. Shireen's surgery is scheduled for next month. As for Marwa's big reveal, everything went well. Yes, I'm very, very happy with it. Shireen hopes for a similar result. After surgery next month, she will finish her last year at university in Iraq and then set off on a journey of her own. She has a scholarship to come study in America. As for Marwa, next week she will head back to Iraq, and she's going back to school. Of course, one girl will always be more deeply scarred than the other, but for both, new confidence will help their scars fade into the future. Elizabeth Threlkill reporting for War News Radio. Even though they're 6,000 miles away, the student journalists of War News Radio use phones and computers to connect with everyday Iraqis and others in the region to paint a portrait of daily life that's all but invisible on the nightly news. For a link to the War News Radio website, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. You know, it's a well-known fact that the most of you women give all of your time, thoughts, and efforts to everyone else in the world except yourselves, and in doing so, You not only neglect your own well-being, but you also neglect your appearance, which in turn is harmful to your whole outlook on life in general. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. So now we've come to our last story of the hour, a story not about body consciousness, but the lack of body consciousness, or the attempt at the lack of body consciousness. While naked, in a restaurant, standing next to other people, in the buffet line. I first heard about these clothing-optional dinners a few years ago, and I couldn't resist. I absolutely had to see it for myself. And see, I did. This story starts out like a typical NPR story. On a beautiful evening on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, diners at Dorian's Restaurant are enjoying a buffet dinner of salmon, grilled vegetables, and skin-on mashed potatoes. There's much convivial chatting as some patrons sit and eat, while others roam around the room greeting old friends. But now the story takes a sharp turn from the typical NPR fare, which usually might be about a chef who uses only ingredients grown in vacant lots and rundown neighborhoods that have been converted to organic community gardens. Where this story is different, where this restaurant is different, where these patrons are different from any other patrons in any other restaurant in any other part of the city, is that each and every diner is naked. It's kind of hard to describe, except that I can honestly say that when I'm naked with other naked people, I really feel good. I feel comfortable, I feel confident, I'm totally relaxed. One of the other people put it that I've never been naked with other naked people when I did not feel good. 
Welcome to the Clothing Optional Dinner, a monthly gathering of nudists, or naturists, we'll define our terms in a minute, at various restaurants around Manhattan for a good meal and an evening out with friends. Their preference? Nudity. Their price? About 30 bucks. Their motto? No hot soup. Now, the mere mention to say family and friends that such a gathering exists can raise a few eyebrows. But the mention of actually attending such a gathering is sure to elicit the exact same look on everyone's face. Let's call it horror. But any nudist will tell you, and having stripped for the occasion myself, I have to agree that those fears disappear within about... Five minutes. It takes about five minutes. John Ordover is the founder of the Clothing Optional Dinners. Because what's sexual is inappropriate nudity or risque nudity. You get no sense of inappropriateness for being dressed the same way as everybody else in the place. Also, my wife found that for the first time in her life, men were actually talking to her eyes instead of to her chest. And um, she found a tremendously refreshing change. While everyone admits to sneaking a peek now and then, they also agree that naked bodies get real boring real fast, especially the ones with a lot of mileage on them, which on this night were out in force. Besides, everyone knows the unspoken golden rule. It's okay to look, but don't stare. (laughs) Then, of course, there is the fear that everyone in the room will look better than you. And trust me, ladies and gentlemen, I am here to tell you that nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, after my own new dining experience, I would have to say that contrary to popular belief, there is really nothing beautiful about the human body. Does it take before you stop sucking in your gut? <laughs> well, I've never, I've, I'll tell you the truth. There aren't that many body beautifuls, you know. I, 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 you really don't feel self-conscious, you know. Now, let's talk logistics. First, sanitation. Each patron has to bring a towel to sit on. Second, temperature. Ordover always brings space heaters if it's cold, and of course, there's air conditioning in warmer weather. Third, other problems that you fear might arise, it rarely ever happens. Why? Because it really is not a sexual environment. Really, really. As people arrive at the restaurants, they can disrobe in the dining room or the restroom. Most choose the restroom. Being naked in a room full of naked people is not nearly as uncomfortable as dressing and undressing is. Once naked, however, everyone agreed that when the clothes go out the window, so do the pretenses. It may just be, be a coincidence, but it seems when people are in the nude, a lot of facades are dropped and personalities come out. And you, you make fast friends in a, in, a, in a matter of moments. Now to the terminology. People who prefer not to wear clothes refer to themselves as nudists or naturists. According to founder John Ordover, the nudists basically just like to be naked, while the naturists equate nudity with being outdoors. Now people say, well, what do you do when it's cold? Well, when it's cold, we put on clothes. The phrases were nudists, not idiots. One of the nudist phrases is um, clothed when necessary, new when practical. Of course, for the clothes-minded, as nudists like to call them, this might be a hard concept to grasp. Pretty much everyone who goes to a nudist resort goes to it so that they will be permitted not to wear clothes. And what I really like most about it is that it's like living the life of a pet. Get up, you do not have to get dressed, get in the shower, and walk right out the front door. Naked, free, unfettered, except even a pet 
doesn't go anywhere without a fur coat. This story originally aired on NPR's Weekend Edition. And I can honestly say, I have not eaten dinner naked in a public place since. The inclination to have or eat such foods is leaving you now and is becoming like a distant memory. It is simply a past experience. It has no effect on you now. Ladies, I've done everything but come into your home personally to help you become a more beautiful individual. Now it's up to you. Make your daily facial exercises a daily habit, and you'll prove there isn't a woman in the world who can't become more beautiful with glamour and a new personality. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Support for ReSound comes from Dojo, a full-service digital agency. On the web at doejo.com. Dojo, we fuel ideas that grow. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, Chicago's Navy Pier, and American Airlines. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. Stay connected with us through Facebook and Twitter or by signing up for our email list at thirdcoastfestival.org. If you like what you heard today, consider writing us a review on iTunes or sending us a few bucks. As always, thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.